Thank you, Pastor. All right. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. It is good to always open uh, a service and even our sermon with God's word. Amen, somebody. I am privileged to be with you all, and it has been an honor to uh, come all the way from Memphis, Tennessee, to uh, preach God's word in fellowship with you. Your hospitality has been so gracious. Uh, Brother Tate has been um, taking me around. See, I, I, I used to, <laughs> amen, I used to be an armor bearer. Y'all know what an armor bearer is? And, and, and when you're in certain church contexts, in a black church, you, you follow a pastor around and you, you, you help him get, get little stuff, you know, take, take the load off sometimes. And so he's been a good armor bearer for me. He's picked me up, got me a cup of coffee and some water. I just, wherever he is, the Lord bless him richly. There's bless him richly. Uh, I, I, I want to, some of y'all may not be here at Evan's um, installation or nation service. So I just want to share one thing that you should know about your pastor because there will be a couple things that I may share this evening. And that is that brother can dance. Uh, if you did not know, uh, the first time I seen Evan was he was dancing on a stage at Columbia, Missouri at this little, this little concert thing. And uh, he was dancing to Chris Brown, yo. And you would think like, oh, Evan kind of carries himself around like this old preacher or whatever. But actually, his bones are not as brittle. And uh, he is very fluid in his movement. I mean, he is really good at dancing. And... Um, uh, so whenever you want him to do a liturgical dance or anything, like, I, th- I, I think he can do it it's fantastically, seriously. Um, so there will be more of those jokes um, later this evening as we celebrate him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but let us uh, open God's word in John chapter 1. Uh, when reading John chapter 1, many of you see the repetition in the language, and that's intentional. Because the rhetoric is directed to a particular people, right? So the Bible, whenever you're reading the Bible, um, one thing to know is the Bible is not written, written for, uh, to us, it's written for us. The Bible is not written to us. There is an implied audience that it is written to, but it's written for us. Therefore, we're peering into the conversation or what is written to the original audience, but yet... God uses his word to illumine, to enlighten us. And we see this um, in some way in chapter 1 where God is, where he presents John, an incarnation of who Jesus is. I think when speaking and encouraging the body of Christ, it's always good to remind us of who Jesus is. Amen, somebody. All right, let us read God's word before um, we get into the introduction. In the, in the beginning was the word. No, sorry. I'm reading in John uh, chapter 9, starting at verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 9. Sorry. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Uh, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Look to the person and say next to you, know him. With your mask on, know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all, everybody say all, who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right right to become children of God. And who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
This is the very words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Everyone in this room, no matter your age, has experienced rejection. In some point in your life, you've been rejected by someone, something. It may have been the college application that you were so nervous to send in to the, the best college, which I'm understanding it's UNC around here, it's Central around here, it's Duke around here. Any other college I'm missing? Okay. That's it, huh? The triangle. I've kind of learned some of the lingo y'all use around these parts. Um, and you may have been afraid to send that uh, college application because you didn't want to be rejected to your favorite school. You may have been afraid to ask for that transfer, that request to transfer to a different department in your, um, in your location or, or a different geographical location because you did not want to be rejected. It could have been that research proposal or thesis that you were drumming up. It could have been the girl or the guy that you were asking on the first date or even their hand in marriage. It could have been the friend group that you, you were trying to be a part of. There could have been several different things. In fact, many have experienced rejection from the church even. We've all experienced it. But in our society, we've prized acceptance. Acceptance means that we are individuals who are a part of what society deems to be what's right. But if we were to only look at acceptance as the role, we then fear the terror and the dread of rejection. We don't want that. But oftentimes it's lying right at our door or we're anticipating being rejected. But why? Why do we fear rejection? We have to ask ourselves. Many of us know that rejection shows no partiality. Doesn't care how old you are, doesn't care how much money you got in the bank. It doesn't care how good you look. It doesn't care if you have hair on your head or you don't have hair on your head. Uh, it doesn't care if you are uh, black, white, Asian, um, Latina, Hispanic. Uh, it doesn't care if you're African. It doesn't care if you're from South America. Rejection meets all of us. It meets all of us. But when we meet it, we are disappointed leads us to have low self-esteem, that we, are, we grieve and we're hurt and we feel angered by it. But no matter who you are, you want to be accepted. Many of you, I don't know much about Durham or the Triangle, but many of you know that people, when they're rejected, they go to places where they can be accepted. Sometimes we deem gangs as trifling and outright wrong individuals, but they are communities that accept young men and women because they've been rejected. And we think about the predators who prey on our young men and women in sex trafficking aspects of things. They give their bodies to these people so that they can be accepted. Rejected by society because they're outcasts, pushed to the side, marginalized often and forgotten even, they give themselves because they've been rejected. It's hard for many of us, even who are searching and seeking God, to understand that the God who created absolutely everything would accept me and all of the flaws of what I did last night, what I did a year ago, months ago, week ago, seconds ago. It's hard to accept the fact that he could pardon my sins after saying a prayer of confession. 
I don't think that he would accept me. Many of us have been hurt by Christianity and pastors in the church and um, been rejected due to the abuse of truth. See, we heard recent news of uh, a well-known individual who um, had done several things to individuals and even breed a culture of rejecting individuals and abusing them. And we oftentimes are disgusted by it. We're not perfect individuals, but oftentimes we want to appear to be. And so if we are fearful of rejection, we prove ourselves that we can do right by being legalistic. Prove ourselves to be right by appeasing others. And so then we compromise our faith and our ethic simply because we want to be rejected. Because we're wired by society that this notion to be loved and expected is the epitome of what it means to be a part of society or human life and to be accepted in all ways. But yet, I want you to understand that the uncomfortability of rejection means that there is things that you relate to with your Savior. But yet, the authority structures and our church leaders and the people around us oftentimes are pushed away because we don't want to submit to any of that, and yet we reject it. So not only do we fear it, but we actually are active rejectors. We know our role and we participate in it well. But why? Why did Jesus come to his own people and why was he rejected by his own? What's the purpose of rejection? Or even better yet, here's the question. Is there even purpose in being rejected? Is there a purpose in the fear of failure? It was Brian Stevenson who wrote a book called Just Mercy. And you probably even watched the movie Just Mercy. Uh, I've been profoundly in- influenced and impacted by his work. Uh, in fact, we went down to Montgomery, Alabama and stayed with a pastor and we visited the sites there. But his book, he told a story. After giving a speech, he told a story about a man who was in a wheelchair uh, who yelled out at him from the back of the room. And he said, young man, do you know what you're doing? Brian Stephen was befuddled because he did not understand who he was talking to. And he yelled again, do you know what you're doing? And Brian still had the puzzled look and curious look on his face. And he said, you're beating the drum for justice. This is the man in the wheelchair saying, you're beating the drum for justice. And many of you who are astute, you know that that is Dr. King's sermon called the drum major. is where he was referring to. And he said, you're beating this drum of justice. And yet, Brian still was confused. So he pulled him closer as Brian met him right there in his wheelchair. And he said, you see this cut that I have behind my ear. I got that in Greene County, Alabama in 1963 trying to register people to vote. And then he pointed to another part where he said, you see this scar on the bottom of my neck? I got that in Philadelphia, Alabama in 1964, trying to register people to vote. You see this bruise, this dark spot on my head? I got that in Birmingham, Alabama in 1965, trying to register people to vote. He went on to say, people look at me. And they think that I'm some weak and feeble man in a wheelchair with cuts, bruises, and scars. But let me tell you something. These aren't my cuts. These aren't my bruises. These aren't my scars. These are my medals of honor. And therefore, what he was hinting to is 
These are wounds for my fellow man. We can all know what that relates to, but I know that his purpose of being rejected, beaten, and bruised benefited many to vote to this day. Therefore, beloved, I'd like to make the argument that there is purpose in rejection. It is okay to know when you are fighting for what is right and when you are fighting to present truth in every facet of life, it is okay, as John Stott put it, to be countercultural. It's okay, as the Bible says, not to be conformed to this world but yet transformed by the power of the gospel. And when you understand that the maker and the creator of you, who uh, many of us know is Jesus, knew the glory and the wonder of rejection, you know that the peace, the justice, and the love that he presents, it came through suffering the injustice and the abuse so that you may have peace, so that I may have peace. Not a peace that comes simply because of how much money I make or how much money you make or how well a student and established and educated we all are. That's not why. You see, it was the prophet Isaiah who knew what it was. In fact, he told Israel as they were in captivity what it was. And it was that Jesus, the Messiah to come, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Prince of Peace bringing us peace. The God of Peace bringing us peace. He is a God that, as we've already seen, needs to be worthy. He is worthy of praise, needs to be praised. He needs to be applauded. He needs to be called upon. He needs to be the very one that we trust and abide in all the days of our lives. Many of you are saying, well, I know that and I understand that. Then I want you to understand that the pain that Jesus endured, the suffering that he endured, the rejection he endured was not for you to have peace merely for your life to be better. It was so you can be a redemptive change agent to bring about peace in all facets of your life. Just three or four amens if you agree with that. Amen, somebody. So when we look at our text, I want you to know the big idea is that Jesus was accept, rejected so that we may be accepted by him. That is the core of my message of this text and what I believe this morning. And I want you to know that what we're going to examine is a couple questions. Who came, what he came to, who, what he came to, what did he come for, and why did he come to be rejected? Let me go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love and your care. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We ask that you hide Michael Davis beneath your cross. Encourage your people with your word and yours alone. And I pray, Lord God, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Our rock and our redeemer, all God's people said together, amen. Who came? It was the word that came. That's what John says. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That is who came, and he was in the beginning. And it was D.A. Carson who said this as he expounded on the verses that the word's prominence is this, that it was in the Old Testament and and a powerful expression in creation, and it revealed and it saved. Jesus personified that word as God's ultimate self-disclosure. The readers of John's gospel, when they 
were uh, reading this captivated simply because the way that he was using the logos, the word, was a way in which this rhetoric and this literary form was to bring them into the reality that the very word that was spoken became human flesh, but yet he created absolutely everything. Not only did he create the creation around them, as the psalmist reminds us in chapter 33, 6 through 9, that he says that it was the Lord who made the, uh, who, who made the heavens, and then he also came and he spoke it to be. See, the psalmist understood it. Even Moses understood it himself when he, God revealed himself in the wilderness to Moses and delivered the people of Israel out of their bondage. The word came. Jesus did not come, though, in all of his splendor to us. He did not come in all of his majesty. It was funny. He came as a poor individual. He came as an individual that would not be accepted into society, one that was looking for the military force and the, eco- the, economic, uh, the economic development that he would bring so that they would, not, they would no longer be under the bondage of the Roman government. See, we all know what it means to be held captive. Don't you know when you were thinking about your sin or living in your sin or living in ways that you were, your heart was breaking and God's heart was breaking because he sinned. You have to recognize your own poverty in order to understand and empathize with what Jesus was doing. When you understand that, when you see that, you may acknowledge that at one point in time you were accepted by society by the things you were doing. But you were rebelling and rejected by God for those very things. And Jesus says this even further, or the Bible says this even further in chapter 2 of Philippians, that Christ came in his humiliation, not just on the death, of the, uh, the death on the cross, but it was in the fact of being made in human flesh. Think about it. The very flesh that he wrapped himself in was actually degrading. It wasn't something that he lavished. Because he understood what he was leaving, the throne that he set upon. In fact, uh, even more, Paul says in First, Second Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 where he says, For you know the grace of, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ that for he was rich. He had money in the bank. He was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Your sake, your sake, your sake, you are precious. You are the very individuals that Jesus died for. For your sake, he became poor. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, it says, Paul goes on to say, so that you may, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Why? Because Jesus knew that it was mandatory for him to leave everything that he had in the perfect relationship that he had in the Godhead so that, He may suffer the poverty. He may live in a feeding trough. He may have poor parents who were hunted and trying to be killed because they were birthing him and be homeless and mistreated in every way because of the need for Jesus on the face of the earth. No one can do the things that Jesus did or no one can do what he's going to do. I like it how someone say, no one can do me like Jesus. Nobody can do me like the Lord. And you have to know that because when you see and understand why he's come, you will 
accept that invitation to come to him, not because you have something to give, not because you have something to offer, because he's given you, he's offered you this invitation to come. All those who are heavy laden, all those that are afflicted, come. All those that are a burden, come, because he has rest for you. Remember, it was the uh, it was Isaiah who said in Isaiah 55, verse 1, where the prophet said, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to, come to the waters. And you who have no money, no money, no money, come buy. That is an oxymoron within itself. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. The essence of the gospel is not for you to pull out your credit cards. It's not for you to empty out your bank account, but it's for you to empty out everything that you think that you have to offer. Relinquish that so that you may embrace the gospel. The essence of the gospel is not for you to shape some pseudo shalom, some shalom that protects you or that's insulating your idea of what society should be or your ideology of what you should think through in your own worldview. But yet God is trying to expand that worldview in order for you to know who he is. So striving out of just maintaining a middle class or upper middle class life, he don't want your wokeness. He don't want all of the things that you think that you bring. He don't want your progressiveness. He doesn't want your own things. He wants you to begin to relinquish what you think that you have and give it all away so that you may begin to abide in him. John says in chapter 15 that if you abide in him, pastor, he says you absolutely know that you can do nothing apart from him. Beloved, it's time for us to know that we can do nothing apart from Jesus and Jesus does all of the work in us. J.I. Packer says we must live our whole lives by this principle of making ourselves poor and spending and being spent. See, this means enriching our communities, enriching our neighbors, It means enriching our friends and family. It means enriching our own church community. When we need to be in positions in the pastors and the church leaders and the city group leaders and the deacons and the elders, all ask us to serve in our body and all ask us to be looking out for one another, not caring for our own needs, but caring for the needs of the person next to us, understanding that they are the ones that we all to care for because who is taking care of our needs? Isn't it funny that he's paying for everything, but it gives us the ability to care for somebody else. I know that it oftentimes seems that you are all by yourself, but can I tell you, he's never left you, nor has he forsaken you. Can I encourage you and let you know that he's with you when you're crying? He's with you when you're sad, and he's giving you a community to be with you as well. It was John Calvin who had a circle and said, see, it was God who leads in this relationship where God and self is circular in some degree, but I like to add others. If we know God, then we will know others. And then when we will know others, we will know self. It's better to know God who will lead us to know others and then lead us to know ourselves. We cannot serve ourselves and think we will know others. J.I. Packer goes on to say that it is this level of service that is a visible proclamation in our, uh, uh, in our giving to, to give, giving our time and trouble, care and concern to do good for others and not just their, our own friends, but in whatever need we see in our communities. I want you to be encouraged because when you think about difficult times of being, making yourself poor, it does require sacrifice. It does require putting your family and your children in positions to where they won't get everything 
everything that they need. The world won't surround around them, but you will teach them fundamental ways on how to care about people that when they see them, they won't look down upon them. Walking out of a donut shop one day, my son seen the poor man and poor man was asking for something and I said wait one second brother I'm gonna bring you out a donut and I brought him out a couple donuts see my son loves to go for donuts and I've been trying to get myself in, in, in shape as a lately so, so I do a protein shake and I, and I try to give up on the donuts on Saturdays but uh, pray for me because it's been a struggle sometimes uh, but we leave out and and uh, not only do I give him a donut I, I give the man just a, a, a little change and my son was asking daddy why did you give that man some 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 money and why did you give him something to eat I said son because I don't know when he will have his next meal I don't know what uh, uh, what needs he has but all I know is I want to help him with whatever need he has and see what it helped my son to do then every time we see a homeless individual for some reason his heart God is cultivating where when we walk into a Walgreens or we walk into a store, he asks, can we get something for the homeless individual? And see, I, I want him to see and, and cultivate that. I want God to cultivate that in his heart. Beloved, we need that mentality when we're looking to the needs of the people around us. But see, I know many of us want to go across the seas and search and all wide, and that is, that is incredibly fantastic. But I tell my congregation back home, if I can't care for your needs, I don't need to go across the water trying to care about somebody else needs and what the war what what I understand then I don't have a limited view of missions I understand the importance of it but what I do try to emphasize to our individuals that we need to make ourselves poor spending our time caring for each and every one of these individuals among us so that the body may be strengthened why because if we don't understand the cosmic forces and realities and the principalities that try to fight against the church then we oftentimes lose who, he, who came, it was Jesus who came as the word. And not only did he come, what did he come to? See, I, when I also uh, think about our society and where we are today, we are a few years, but not long ago was there issues and still issues today when we think about segregation. And so when I took my son down to the Legacy Museum and we looked at the suspended beams of names listed of individuals that were lynched, Many times we forget about those individuals. And it was heartbreaking just a couple years ago to know that the woman who, who actually accused Emmett Till of looking at her wrong said on her deathbed that he did nothing wrong. Isn't it funny that we've all forgotten the people, the forgotten ones who've been lynched and beaten and bruised because they were fighting and battling for those to have civil rights. Isn't it funny that oftentimes that we can look to our own needs and just forget those that were lost? I don't want us to forget, beloved, because there was the church, not just some movement, not just some societal movement, the church at the forefront of that movement. Who is that church? It is our family. And see, when my son was in the Legacy Museum, he said, Daddy, why is the little boy tied to the church? And I said, son, he's tied to the chains because the world wasn't right. They didn't want it to accept the truth. They only wanted spirituality. He said, daddy, why did it have to be that way? And I said, son, I can't explain everything, but it's hard for me to break down without me. It's hard for me not to break down without breaking down why individuals were, uh, were treated certain ways and people were treated certain ways because of the content, uh, because of the color of their skin and not the content of their character. God, God helps us to see 
that we are all created in his image and his likeness. But oftentimes, when we look at our society and the segregation that, that led us not to be in this room with black and white and not to be in this room with Asian and black and not to be in this room with Hispanic and not to be in this room with those that are from Africa, etc., all across the world, it said we were supposed to be segregated at one point in time. That we could not be in this room, but we are trying to transform that notion with the gospel. What did he come for, beloved? It was my friend who also knew that his um, mother was going through dementia and he had to take her in. And as she was going through dementia, one day she turned around and she said, you're not my son. The pain and the hurt that he felt, acknowledging that my mother doesn't know me anymore. The woman who's raised me after several years doesn't recognize that I'm her son alienation, division, spiritual dementia. We reject Jesus just like this oftentimes because we don't recognize him. We don't know him. That's what the text says. When you look at the text right there in verse 10, it says, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Isn't it funny that we can have theology, we can have seminaries, many of us can have our own systematic categories and biblical theology, and we can be astute in various different ways, even in secularism, and we can be astute in various different ideologies of the world, but yet we don't know the very one that can change absolutely everything. Israel did that. Oftentimes when when you look at them being in captivity, it was more... They felt it was more okay for them to adopt idols because they felt those gods, their gods, the Babylonian gods, the gods of other cultures were bigger than the very God that delivered them out of Egypt. I think we do the same thing. God's brought us out of the muck and mire, and sometimes we forget once we get in the classroom and the professor challenges our worldview. We forget when we walk into our office buildings and people challenge our worldview. See, there are urban communities where black and brown individuals are challenged because someone says the Jesus that you worship only has the pigmentation of white individuals. That's not true. You have to know him, not just intellectually, but relationally. Because the idea here is not that they just did not know him. God is saying that he actually owns them, but yet they don't receive him. They knew who Jesus and what Jesus could do, but receiving him was a different thing. See, the word own right here meant that they were property or that this was like where he was was the homeland and that he actually owned absolutely everything. That hints to the fact that he was made for, everything was made through him. And this is why John was trying to reiterate that throughout this entire soliloquy. And, And I want you to understand that what he was trying to help them see is that they were rejecting the very God that made them. The concept of the image of God in Genesis 1, 26 through 27 is a concept not that is merely just to the Bible, but it was to the ancient Near East. Mesopotamians and Egyptians used the language of imaging in order for those that were worshiping maybe idols or worshiping other gods and queens and hieroglyphics, what they would do is they would create little images, and those images were little figurines, and those things became the very things that they thought would either reflect what they want to worship. The word was not a word that they can create. Jesus 
was not a Jesus that they can make. God was not a God that they created. He was the word. And by his word, he created them. Can I make it a little bit more plain for us? Jesus was rejected in order to, be, to state his claim on you. Jesus was rejected in order for you to understand that the very thing to receive him, to come to him, to know that he made it abundantly clear that when you receive him, that you would have absolutely everything. He is saying that I own you because I made you. You didn't make me. You can't make me. Not only did he come to you, but he, you got to ask the question, who did he come for? He came for his treasure possession. Throughout the Old Testament, God refers to his treasure possession, not a random piece of jewelry or a treasure that is left in a place of a museum. He didn't do that. He came because you were precious. The people of God are precious. And when we understand that, you see that he wants to hold that treasured possession close to his heart. And the word was not just towards a general population, but it was specified to his own people. And see, the Jewish community, however they seen it, knew that they were a community, a coveted community in which we all should be. And that's what he's come to. And that's what we should look to as being a body of believers, known that God has made us so that we will worship him and him alone and that he's defined every single thing that we can think will be higher than him. Every single thing, absolutely every single thing. And that helps us because God is continuously pursuing us. Why? Because we too have been stiff-necked people. As Jeremiah 7, 25 through 26, you see God pursuing a people who's rebelled against him, who's rejecting him, who's coming close to him. Why is it that when we were yet hostile, Jesus found the time to die for us? Can you imagine coming home and your child rejecting you, telling you to get out your house? Well, better yet, and my son did that, it'd be a whole heap of trouble. But, but better yet, could you imagine if your husband and your wife, imagine your roommates, imagine the people that are close to you simply reject you and tell you to get away from you. How would you feel? Will you feel treasured? Will you feel loved? Will you feel cared for? You wouldn't. But what Jesus is saying that though you may receive rejection from others, he's giving you hope. Even in a ruined humanity, he's pardoned your sins. He's given you glory. I mean, he's, he's the hope of your glory. He's the hope of your shalom. Why? Because he cares for you and he came for you. And he wants you to know that you're a treasured possession. I did, there are so many individuals who walk into my office who I encounter that do not feel like they're worth anything. Through the pandemic, so many individuals who have felt isolated and marriage issues. You know, when I'm dealing with people who have messed up, the first thing that I say is you have inherent dignity, worth, and value. Because just because you messed up, amen, just because you've messed up, just because you've done something wrong, it does not mean that God doesn't treasure you. It doesn't mean that he's rejected you. When you confess your sins, it's the beautiful thing about the liturgy that we have. When you confess them and you lay them down, it's, it's not just something that you come to. It's something that's forming you and shaping you in, in every aspect of your life. Because can I tell you, you're being formed and shaped by society. They're discipling you. Society's shown enough discipling you. How many of y'all have been in your Amazon cart and you, 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 you go into every deal, every buy one, get one free? How many times are we shopping on our apps because we can't go to the store? 
How many times are we falling for everything that's advertising for our time and attention? I, want to, I really want you to know that it's not the clothes that you wear. It's not what you buy. It's not what you have. God treasures you because he's made you. That's who he's came for. But why was he rejected? Why did he come knowing that he would be rejected? He came knowing that he would be rejected because he wanted to adopt you. He wanted you to know that your justification does not come because how well you have been doing in life. How you've been able to keep up a picture or image of Christianity. How you can be deistic and, and, and hold to other things, but yet not really abide in Christ. He wants you to know that you don't need to be accepted by the ways in which society has caused us and, been, and wired us. There was a story about an African-American family that adopted a white girl. Mark and Terry adopted Katie. And as they would walk through the park, as they would walk through the store, they encountered situations where individuals would ask the little girl if she's being kidnapped, if she's being forced against her will. Is she okay? And as they began to recognize and pick up on these things, they felt that it was weird that they were trying to accept a young girl who actually was being rejected by every foster care home in their community and being rejected by her own parents. See, that notion within itself, a black family adopting a white girl, we don't see that oftentimes. And it means that oftentimes it, it, it shifts, the way, shifts the way we understand things. But, but what I want you to understand is that same reality is what we struggle with when I talk about a spirituality with no truth. Because the way, 2020, 20, the way 2021 started out, we thought it would be better. But yet we've seen a Jesus saves and a noose in the same setting at the Capitol. Those realities don't come together but yet we try to force them together. What do we need to reject, beloved? Why was he rejected? He was rejected so that we may be accepted by the way that he's justified us, adopted us. When everybody else pushed us aside, he was the God that said, you can come to me. Even though he didn't look like he had much, even though he didn't look like, he does not look like that he can do much, even though it seems like sometimes he's quiet, sometimes he's nowhere to be found, can I tell you that he wants to accept you because he loves you, cares about you, and he sees you as precious in his sight. Though that you were once a stranger, though that you were once an alien, he's saying that you now have privileges, you now have rights because I said that you have rights, because I died. I died for you to have those rights. I died for you to have those privileges. And isn't it funny that verse 12 makes it even clear because he wants us to receive him. And he wants us to believe not in our own name, not in the name that we make great for ourselves, but in his name, in his name alone. And he gave the right to become children of God, the rights to become children of God. Isn't that good to hear? Isn't that encourage your heart? Because he didn't just come to transform all of creation, the moon, the stars, the grass with us and the flowers that fade. He didn't come just to, to, to redeem that, but he also came to redeem a people intimately and intentionally. And he's doing it because I don't want you to get this, that your, your, your personal salvation is not what's at the forefront of you walking with Jesus. It's that you walk together as a community. 
He's transformed that community, a people, a place. Why? Because hopelessness overwhelms us, but he gives us hope. Meaningless, meaninglessness overwhelms us, but he gives us meaning. And you know what he also does? He accepts those who've thought that they need to be initiated by being beaten, bruised, and jumped on. But he said that you don't need to be beaten, bruised, and jumped on and somebody can accept you. You just need to understand that I've been beaten, I've been bruised, and I've been jumped on so that you will be a child of the living God. I, I, I just want you to be encouraged, beloved, because I know that when you drink a little bit more than you're supposed to, when you drug a little bit more than you're supposed to, I, I know that it's hard at times, but what he's saying is don't rely or become dependent on a, on a substance. Become, rely and dependent on a substance that's the word of God that is firm foundation, that is a solid ground. That's the very thing that you don't have to worry about crumbling at one time. You don't have to assimilate into no one's culture. All you have to do is assimilate into what Jesus is doing. You don't have to give yourself over so some man or some woman will love you. You don't have to give money so something can, someone can believe in you. You don't have to have the house so people can think that you are doing something. Can I tell you, all you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ and he will fulfill you. He said he is the fulfillment of absolutely all things. And beloved, when we understand that, what happens is we're able to reject our own ideologies to accept what he has given us, a worldview that will use us to change the world. I love jazz music. Gregory Porter is one of my favorite jazz, music, jazz vocalists. And he had a song called Take Me to the Alley. And uh, his mother was a Baptist, uh, not Baptist, a Methodist preacher. And she uh, would make Thanksgiving a whole spread. And she made that spread. It, w- it was a beautiful spread. And, and, I, and I start to fantasize when I think about it. And I preach on it. I told you I was trying to get my act together. But Gregory Porter would tell this story right before he sing um, Take Me to the Alley. And see, I think Gregory Porter has a voice that's better than that King Cole. And so he would tell this story about his mother preparing this meal for them to eat on Thanksgiving. You see, mama made green beans. She made macaroni and cheese. She made turkey. She made the smotherts. She made the sweet potato pie. I know some people like pumpkin pie. I'm not going to hate on that. But then and she also laid the pecan pie, the German chocolate cake. And see, he would lay it all out. She had the spread. And so she would have them prepare the table in order for the spread to be prepared. And then she asked them to say a blessing over the food. They'd hold hands and they'd begin to pray over the food. They, want, they didn't want the prayer to be too long because the food, the aroma, the sweet aroma was getting to them and they were ready to eat. And as they were preparing to eat after they said, allow this food to be nourishing to my body. And so they'd say, amen in Jesus' name. And she'd say, wrap the food up. They didn't understand why they would wrap the food up because they didn't have anywhere to go. They there was no, one, no family that they were going to go to. It was eight of them, and they were going to eat all of the food. But she said, I want you to wrap the food up because we're taking it to the alley. Why would we take it to the alley, they would think, because she said, we want to feed those that were forgotten. We want, to forget, we want to feed those that were rejected by society. You see what I'm saying? We wanted to feed those that did not have a place to go, that did not have a home to be. We want to, we want to feed those that society sees as worthless, that society deems that they don't need a home or they don't, they don't need a Thanksgiving or they cannot be invited into one. And see, this all falls into the perspective of what it means to be forgotten by society. And so she said that we don't want to give them leftovers either. 
Isn't that funny? She didn't want to give them the very things that they ate afterwards. She wanted to give them the first fruits, and they'd eat the leftovers. Beloved, I I want that to speak to your heart because Jesus, who was wounded, who was bruised, who was chastised, he didn't do it to give us the leftovers. He didn't do it as a second thought. He had a redemptive plan since Genesis chapter 3 for each and every one of you. He cares for you. And the table lets you know that you're accepted. For every time you've been rejected, the table says that you have a home, that you have a place, that you have a community, that you have aunts and uncles, you have a family here at Christ Central Church. When you didn't have anywhere else to go, when you struggle in your faith, and you may still struggle in your faith right now, you may not believe in Jesus, but I can tell you that the doors of this church, the arms of this church are open to you, and the cross that you see, there's a big Jesus that has opened his arms to you so that we all will go to the alley and share not our leftovers, but the goodness of Jesus to those that are forgotten. Father, we love you and we thank you because we are tremendously loved by you. And God, oftentimes we feel like we are bearing so much weight. But I pray that you encourage our hearts and our minds in this time to know every time we've been rejected, that when we feast together, it is a sign of your acceptance. It's in Jesus' name we pray.